I am winging this talk. <laughs> <laughs> Just want you to know right at the beginning. <laughs> I don't know if it's worth taping, uh, but we're going ahead. Um, and I'm winging it, winging it on faith because that's the name of this talk. This talk is about faith and aspiration and confidence and energy and effort. And at the suggestion of Michael Barden, I took the three talks and I just put the pages together and I'm just going to talk about whatever is on that page. <laughs> so this is a, a talk that weaves around three women that I've been inspired by in terms of their faith. And I'll, I'll tell a little bit about their stories. Uh, this first woman is Sister Chitendria. And I was at teaching at IMS a couple of winters ago. And uh, this came through the fax machine. It was an account of her five-week walk, or Tudung, from Amravati to Devon. And she recapped it in this short story that she sent to one of my friends and the, the resident teacher of IMS at that time, Gloria Ambrosia. And as she recapped her story, it was really interesting. She told in the story of all the places that she had stayed on that walk and uh, all the situations that she was in, the alms rounds to get their food, that she was involved in the storms, the hard times, the magical places. And the story to me was very ordinary, but in its ordinariness it had uh, a beauty to it. And this is what she wrote about it. The following is a short account of our five-week walk from Amaravati to Devon. And to recap it, all in any short form really is difficult. So this is a general outline of the experience, picking up on just a few of the incidents that took place. The idea of going on a Tudong conjures rather romantic and inspirational images and feelings, for me at least. But reality is never contained or represented fully in ideas and perceptions and always remains unexpected and unknown. She has this, this way of, within the ordinariness of telling her story, these phrases and these um, uh, ways that she captures such deep wisdom, how reality remains always unexpected and unknown. And I think in, this is what faith asks of us. Can we surrender to the unknown, to the next moment? Can we surrender into the mystery of life and let it be a mystery and not have to control it or know what's happening? The journey wasn't all inspirational by any means, in concept and theory and in philosophical retrospect. Yes, perhaps, 
but the nitty-gritty of it at times was quite challenging physically, mentally, and emotionally. But then that is what this kind of work is all about. This kind of walk is all about. It's a kind of stripping away of the usual comfort zones that one can retreat into so as to contemplate the sense of insecurity that is thus laid bare in the face of the unknown. It is a kind of stripping away of the comfort zones that one can retreat into. So as to contemplate the sense of insecurity that is thus laid bare in the face of the unknown. This is much of what the monastic training is about to do, to train the mind to be more fully present with life as we experience it in the raw, in the raw, creating the possibility for direct insight into the true nature of things. So these walks are a monastic practice intended to deepen mindfulness, to cultivate the heart of faith, and to develop qualities such as patient endurance, equanimity, and gratitude. And I think oftentimes we come to this kind of a practice and we think that we're just going to fall into moments of confidence. We're going to fall into moments of happiness, of pleasantness, that it's going to be easy. And we start out with those expectations which are exactly the opposite of what we experience. And it's helpful to keep reminding ourselves that when we come into a practice like this, the very fact that it is opening to dukkha cultivates these qualities that we then get to enjoy later on because they are just not there in the beginning and they're cultivated through the opening to the unknown, through the surrendering to the mystery, through the experience of the difficult places. So more about Sister Jatindriya later. And the second uh, story of a woman is about how I began my own practice and how my own faith grew like a tiny seed that began so small, that began in such an ordinary way. The story I have isn't so special, really. But because it's so ordinary, I like to tell the story because it gives a voice to our own ordinary aspirations that seem so ordinary. And maybe it touches into our own faith because when we hear stories that aren't <coughs> mythological, um, 
or otherworldly. Maybe we can align ourselves with something very immediate and down to earth. In our own lives, you know, we're, we're not like those nuns uh, in the stories of old. Uh, we're wiping runny noses a lot, you know, we're changing the oil in the cars, we're cleaning toilets, we're figuring out how to survive old age. And this is how it is for us. Yet in some way, even though we have this ordinariness from which our aspiration comes, we still have that aspiration, that homing instinct, just like the Buddha, just like the, the sages of old. We have this homing instinct to feel connected with all of life. And just to put it simply, to um, know what the truth is, to hear those, when we hear those stories about, you know, the, the empty nature of life and the unconditioned uh, nibbana, there's a curiosity about it that's really healthy. It's easy to fall into, you know, well, I can't do that. Well, that's, you know, that's really far away from what I'm experiencing when we hear those stories. But if we can come to it from more of a place of curiosity rather than a place of um, that we can't do it or that we're unworthy or that we're not, we don't have that kind of karma or whatever it is, but maybe from a place of curiosity, which is the place that I started from. Just being really curious about what all of that is about and not taking anybody else's word for it. I wanted to know how to be happy. You know, when I first came into the Buddha's teachings, we always hear the metta phrase, may you be happy, may I be happy. And that's what really touched me. How could I really be happy, not dependent on the things of this world, but a happiness that came just from waking up in the morning? You know, that, that's really rare, to wake up in the morning and feel happy. Somebody told me on retreat that they woke up feeling happy a few moments, and I was so happy about that, you know, like, that's really rare. And that's what I was looking for like 30 years ago, and for somebody to fall upon that, to just wake up not feeling angry, not feeling that you wanted more. And there are more times like that in our practice when we really practice with that kind of curiosity, that willingness to be open to life and see what it brings us, that willingness to surrender to the mystery, to sort of um, free fall into the mystery of life. A long time ago when someone asked, 
me, what brought me to the Dhamma, what brought me to the the teachings, my answer was that suffering brought me to the teachings. That it was through um, this sacred initiation, and I call it my own heavenly messenger. It might not have been so heavenly, but it pointed me in the right direction at least. really digging deep into a kind of um, strength that could bring me through that suffering. And that strength was faith. So my own journey or initiation through that suffering became really conscious that long ago. I I can't remember the time, 25 or 30 years ago now, when there was a lot of fear, insurmountable fear and doubt, but a curiosity and a determination that was ever so subtle, but that kept me going. So it was about that time that I was around 18 years old And I was married at that time um, through some, I come from an Asian Filipino family and my, uh, and a poor family. And my mother uh, wanted me to be in a stable family that had a lot of financial security. And so through some course of events, I met a person from my mother country of the Philippines who, um, who I had known for only eight days, and through a courtship that was away from home, he was in the Philippines and I was at home, he asked me for my hand in marriage by saying, if my father asked your mother for your hand in marriage, would you accept? And that, that was the way it was. And um, so I, I said yes. And so I married him hardly knowing him. And my mother was uh, very happy about this. And it was like a family thing, you know. And um, I went to the Philippines. And I was in this very wealthy family, very political family. And I had everything I wanted. And it it was like very different for me. You know, if I if we ran out of cash, the bank our bank account was directly connected to my father in law's at that time. And so it just dipped into his account. And um, a house and a car was given to us and I had everything. Uh, but I wasn't happy at all. There was total poverty surrounding me, and I felt like I couldn't take it. You know, there were beggars and young children, and there were prostitutes, and that was the heavenly messenger of dukkha for me. You know, it was sort of like that that place in my heart that wanted me to know the truth brought me to a place where I was in so much wealth and um, surface beauty. And I was surrounded by poverty and suffering, and that was so much deeper. 
I tried to do things like work in an orphanage and um, help people that were poor, and that wasn't enough. You know, even even that kind of generosity of helping wasn't enough to to satisfy the need I had to understand more deeply what this was all about. You know, there was kind of, that was opening to the dukkha outside of me, but it wasn't opening to the dukkha inside my heart. I felt really sick all the time, heart sick all the time, from that place of wealth. Um, I couldn't express my broken heart to anyone, and nobody could understand it who was around me. I used to go to church a lot. I was raised in a Catholic church, and I used to do the, the novenas a lot, you know, where you pray over and over and say the rosary. And when I look back now, I could see how that really um, cultivated a lot of concentration in my practice. But nothing quenched my thirst, no matter how much I felt um, secure in that environment outside of me. I wanted to know peace, not in a church, but I wanted to know peace in my heart. And so I had to let go of all of that. It, it wasn't enough. And uh, because of complications in, in the marriage and because of my uh, married family being in a political situation, I had to leave the country because of martial law. Um, and it was very difficult. And I left with three kids and $300, because that's all you could leave with at that time, and um, with the help of the U.S. Embassy. And I went, came to the U.S., and I had to have three jobs. So I remember um, three children, $300, and three jobs. <laughs> If it weren't for the children, I wouldn't want to live. It was that, it was that hard. It was, the children were driving me crazy, but they were the things that made me had, have to be alive to, you know, keep care of them. And so that was when, you know, that time, at the height of suffering for me, at the height of dukkha, was when my really, um, I was really conscious of this homing instinct to go home, to go to a place that was beyond the conditions of this life. And they were with seemingly insurmountable circumstances. So that it was this truth of suffering that sort of initiated me into that. It was really hard to stay open to that um, aspiration during that time because I felt it was life was so heavy, and but there was nothing else I could do if I didn't stay connected with that aspiration. I would literally die. Um, I would literally die. I mean, I. It was so hard, you know. There was. Uh, so much to handle. 
So it was hard to stay open, but it was harder to stay closed. It was harder to ignore that aspiration to go beyond. So I learned at that time that the beauty of this practice is that the suffering that we open to strengthens our practice. It strengthens those very things that we need to help us to continue going. And it helps us to develop those things that then later in our practice we rest in and we find joy and peace in, like patience, you know, like, um, like peace, like tolerance, like the ability to withstand the silent scream dukkha that doesn't even have an object that you can't even know where it comes from, but you feel like screaming silently. Um, It gives you the strength to rest in that later on. And I came to see that uh, we're always given just as much as we can open to, if we can just open to it and go through that test because we're never given more than we can open to. But we don't believe it. We have this doubt, and the doubt gets louder than our aspiration. The doubt in ourself gets louder than our belief in ourselves, in that we can do it. We're never um, given more than we can take. So there's different kinds of faith that I found out about along the way. And there there's these different faiths that the Buddha talk, talk about. First, there's a blind faith when we begin our journey and we don't know why, but we just keep going and something propels us and pulls us along the way. And maybe it's something from some past life, if you believe in that that keeps you going on the path and brings you to the places where you think you shouldn't be, but they're just the right places to be. And we keep going with that kind of blind faith. And we wake up, and that's when we start waking up, we begin to get more conscious of a deep aspiration to know something beyond a blind faith. And that's when our aspiration begins, but maybe we're not so in alignment with it yet. And we have an experience, or maybe we read a book, or we meet a person, or we're in a place that opens us, that really inspires us to keep going. And then we get more in touch with that aspiration to go beyond the known. And that's when the faith is called bright faith. When it, um, there's something bright about that experience that keeps us going. And that experience is like a reflection of our own hearts. That brightness is really a reflection of the light in our own hearts, where 
you know, it, it says um, to you, it, it's like a mirror, and it says you've got it inside. But maybe we don't get the message yet so clearly. A lot of times, um, that message is like a feeling of, of love for yourself. And maybe that love comes as a mirror from someone else, but, or maybe like somebody else really believes in you, and so you believe in yourself. And the bright faith came for me um, during that time when I was in the Philippines. And there was a, you know, the, in the Philippines there's a lot of, many people are Catholics, and so there's a lot of connection with um, saints, and especially the, the Holy Mother, the Blessed Mother. And so there was an apparition of the Blessed Mother in the Philippines, and this actually is not rare, a rare thing for that place in the world. It happens every few years, every 20 or 30 years. And so the, um, I was at home, and the help in the house came home. They just came from the market, and they said in the next town there was a bright light, an apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and they wanted me to come. And so, of course, I was really curious, and we got in the car and we went. And so we parked the car, and we walked around a kind of winding road. And before I got there on the footpath, I looked above some palm trees that were coming together, and there was a bright light. And this was daytime. It was not nighttime. And there was a bright light above. And so I just kind of kept in tune with that light. And as I went around the path, I got to a place that when I looked at that bright light, there was a formation of a, a person. And so when I looked up at that person, it uh, was a, a, a woman, very serene, um, with um, um, a veil on and long robes. And she had her hands outstretched. And I could see her face, and I could see her hands, and I could see her feet, but everything else was covered. But her whole body was translucent, and I could see through it. And I was so um, taken by this, this sight of serenity and beauty that I fell to the ground and on my knees. And uh, then I knew what genuflecting was all about. Uh, um, and so I looked up, and I... Um, I, there were no words at all, but I heard her words. And her words weren't an injunction. Her words were like a koan to me, and they weren't out loud. And her words were like the words that keep me going, that keep me being curious, that keep me on the path. And her words were, what are you doing here? There wasn't anything extraordinary. You know, it was quite an ordinary question. <laughs> what are you doing here? And that was, the, that was the faith that was really bright to me. And that 
bright face helped me to keep going. And it, it was like when I, when I saw the look, the eyes of that person on me, and that, that kind of um, confidence that I could find the answer to that for myself, that kind of love in me, that really helped me. I still remember that a lot, and that kind of, that light of that experience keeps me going. But really, it turned the mirror into my own heart. Um, her love and her confidence that I could find the answer is still with me. And I, I always remember this story from the Velveteen Rabbit, you know. Do, do you guys know the story about the Velveteen Rabbit? I wish I had the words, but um, where this, this one, um, this Velveteen Rabbit goes up to this old bear in the story. And the Velveteen Rabbit loses his master out of some illness, and the master isn't there anymore, the little boy. And so it was a magical moment, and the Velveteen Rabbit goes up to this old bear that was all just with his hair falling off, and you know, it was just raggedy and everything. And, um, and um, he asked this, this, this kind of sage, you know, this was the guru of all the toys in, in that <laughs> place. And so he asked this guru, this toy guru, how do you become real? You know, what is real and how? And he answered, you become. It's slow. It takes a long time. And you become when someone loves you till your teeth fall out and your hair falls out and you're all raggedy and old. And you go through a lot through that becoming. That was another bright faith to me. <laughs> True um, faith is called verified faith. When, you know, when we really turn that light on in ourselves and we know for ourselves what that place of unconditioned peace and unconditioned happiness is. When we verify for ourselves how it is. And then it's unshakable. And then no matter what happens, no matter what anybody says, no matter what kind of um, blame or lack of confidence that anyone has in you, it won't shake you up because you understand for yourself how it is deeply. And when that happens, it doesn't matter if that happens, you know, like in a moment of knowing how the moment is for yourself or when it's in some kind of falling into nibbana, or the unconditioned. It unleashes a power and energy and courage that is incredible. And it brings forth an energy that sustains you on the path, that allows you to keep giving of yourself, 
to keep letting go. It allows you to keep moving so you're not falling into the past, into the future, and the moment isn't standing still either. There's different kinds of energy that we need in practice. The first kind of energy is called launching energy. And you might have recognized this in your practice. When we start off and you, you know, you really have to keep your intention going. We're, we're tired from life and the tendency is to, you know, get discouraged. The hindrances keep coming upon us. And uh, we need to keep reminding ourselves during this time, I made this commitment and I'm going to follow through on it. Every moment counts. You know, everything, everybody in our family has supported us to be here and can't disappoint them. You know, I, I would always think that when I'd go away, that uh, my family made a lot of, of sacrifices for me to be here, so I don't want to let them down. And so uh, I don't want to go home early and say I gave up. You know, what, what kind of model would that be for my, my children if I did that? Even many times I thought about that, to go home. So making a commitment and keeping it and reflecting on that. Um, Self-pity comes. You know, these are things that come that we should recognize that keep us from being on the path. Discouragement, self-pity. A lot of times self-pity is disguised as doubt. You know, we think we're doubting, but it's really, if we look more closely, it's self-pity. Hopelessness. Sometimes we're not recognizing the feeling of hopelessness. It disguises itself also as doubt. Doubt is um, because we're not looking close enough. Doubt is not really the opposite of confidence. Doubt is the opposite of clarity. When we can be really clear about what's happening in the moment, there's no room for doubt. So just looking more closely at what's happening, you know, letting ourselves sink into the moment more, not getting caught up in discursive thinking about the discouragement, about, you know, making that call to the airlines and finding out if our ticket can be. <laughs> you know, we can go home sooner. The second kind of effort or energy is called liberating effort. And um, Upandita refers to this as the second stage of the rocket. You know, the first stage takes us really getting beyond the forces of gravity, the forces of, you know, our habitual tendencies to give up on ourselves. And the second stage is called liberating effort, where we need sometimes a boost of encouragement. Uh, maybe a lot of times it's just from ourselves, you know, from a spiritual friend, from Rupert, or Pavarotti does that, you know, when a lot of times I'm sitting here thinking, 
oh, how am I going to go on? How am I going to give that Dhamma talk tonight? And Pavarotti just comes with his song, and I feel so encouraged. You, know. <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. <laughs> um, my granddaughter tells me this. Uh, there was once I was on the phone with her, and I was telling her how proud I was of her because she had graduated from uh, kindergarten, and she got some awards. And I was asking her on the phone, how are you, how are you so smart? You know, you're just such a smart girl. Where'd you get it from? And she said, Nana, when you got it, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, all right. And I was so proud of her, you know, that she's, uh, she's got that confidence, that kind of natural confidence that I didn't start out with in life. And so then I was talking to her mom, and I was saying to my daughter, that's really great, you know, that she's, she's got that confidence and everything. And so me and my daughter were talking, and then I heard my granddaughter in the background. She said, Nana, Nana, you got it too. You got it too. And then later on, before we hung up, she called out again, and she said, Nana, go girl. <laughs> that, that's my boost of encouragement. Whatever you can dredge up, <laughs> Pavarotti, whatever boost of encouragement you can dredge up from your life to keep you going, bring it forth. Bring it forth. Because that bringing forth, when you can bring that forth, that is faith. You know, that that's helping you to touch into faith. When we reflect on the preciousness of life, that's faith. When we can reflect on that. Um, we never know if we'll be able to come back to practice again. When I think of that when I'm practicing, I can get up earlier. I can stay up later. I can get through that moment of pain with a little more equanimity, with a little more energy, that kind of liberating effort that gets me to the place where I can see the coming and going of pain and not be stuck in its solidity. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves again to keep that commitment. And this comes with every place in practice, wherever we're at in practice, to remind ourselves to keep that commitment. I remember one time Upandita said just kind of an off-the-cuff remark when I couldn't keep going, and he didn't know what to say. I mean, he was, he was, um, I remember there was this translator, another monk, Uniyanaponika from Nepal, and I was, I was so, in so much heart dukkha, so much pain. And Uniyanaponika was getting up from his seat and going around and saying, oh, there's so much suffering in this world, there's so much suffering in this world. And Upandita didn't know what to do with me. And um, I was down on the ground, in a, kind of in a puddle. And, so <laughs> and then Upandita said, it, it, it didn't, it, what he was what he said was important, but how he said it was more important because he just had so much compassion. And I knew 
He didn't know what to do, but he wanted me to keep going. And his belief that I could kept me through. But he said the words that were translated, um, when you go, when now go out to walk, and when you give up, just pull up your socks and keep going. <laughs> and so every time that happens, like in, in when I'm walking, it's like I bend down, and usually I'm wearing socks, you know. I bend down and I pull up my socks and I say, okay, I can keep going. And I just remember um, my teacher's confidence in me, you know, that I can keep doing it. And, and I appreciate him so much because he's so hard and he doesn't care whether I like him or not, but he is one of the two most important people in my life because he believes that this heart can be fully opened and without a doubt. And so that is so important to me. So I remember that belief that he has in me, and that keeps me going. You know, sometimes we have this, if I can't do it for myself, you know, I'll do it for the benefit of all beings. But when we have somebody like that, we say, I can do it for my teachers. So it's like getting into high gear when we do that, because we can align ourselves with their own commitment and we get into a higher gear, this liberating effort. Because you feel their commitment to the Dhamma and their commitment to their own opening, which is nothing any different from yours. And it releases a, a much more subtle energy to be with things as they are. It releases the energy to be with whatever's happening moment to moment. Not this like big, really big push, but to be with things moment to moment. That kind of trust when you say, I trust in the Dhamma, I take refuge in the Dhamma. To me, it's like the Dhamma is more, to me, the truth of this moment than anything else, because that's the only truth I could ever know. I can't really know the truth, all those truths that the Buddha talked about and how he talked about them, or Padmasambhava, or any, any other great being. I can only know the truth of this moment. That's the only truth that will ever exist for me. That's the truth of the Dhamma for me. And that's the kind of energy it releases to be with that kind of truth, whether it's painful or um, blissful, and to not hold on to whatever it is. And then there is a persistent energy. This is a third kind of effort or energy, the persistent, persistent energy, where that kind of effort being with things moment to moment is like what Upandita calls the third stage of the rocket where you begin to escape the gravitational pull 
you know, all the, the hindrances, the thought patterns, um, the empty echoes of doubt that you believe out of habit. And at that point, it's necessary to keep a balanced flow of energy required for deepening your practice. Here, what is required is a lot of equanimity to be with, you know, one moment of it's wonderful and one moment is the hell realms. At this time, when we have that kind of persistent energy, um, we feel like we can withstand anything and everything. And it's possible to have that kind of persistent energy. I tell this story sometimes of a time when I practiced in Australia with Upandita. And, you know, I thought I was going to go far away to someplace really quiet and beautiful. And I went at a time when they were renovating the halls. And so there were all these um, jackhammers going. And uh, this is what we had to sit with. And so you guys are really lucky <laughs> when I, you know, uh, these conditions are like, I think I'm happy for you guys so much of the time because I think that your good karma is bearing fruit. <laughs> and you, you have these, these wonderful tastes, these, you know, the sounds of the birds, this, you know, the clouds at just the right time of the day. And, um, you know, these conditions. And I had these jackhammers. <laughs> and it, but it was with the jackhammers that there was a need to have these different kinds of energy and this persistent energy to just really get through it. So finally, there's this fulfilling effort where it takes you completely beyond and into this unconditioned peace. And so when this happens, it, it gets to be to this place of this verified faith. And it transforms us from, you know, having our faith in something outside to having our faith in what's within. It's faith, really, in our ability to let go, to not hold on. It's faith in being a true renunciate, which means, like Suzuki Roshi says, not giving up the things of this world, but knowing that they go away. That's the true renunciation, to not struggle with things because you know more deeply how it is. I want to talk about a little bit about um, this book that I'm reading. Some of you told me you've read it, about um, this woman, this English woman, Tenzin Palmo, her quest for enlightenment. It's, to me, it is an incredibly inspiring story. Uh, how many of you have read it? It's about this woman who started at a young age 
at the age of 18. And she had this urge to go, to know something beyond what she knew. And so, to make a long story short, and maybe you'll read it yourselves, she decided to go look for her teacher, which was somewhere around in Tibet, around that area, Tibetan teacher. So she found this person, and this person wasn't giving her uh, the teachings that she wanted. She was uh, put more in a place of service, of serving the Dhamma, and that she, she just, she wanted more than that. And she had this quest to, she has this uh, aspiration to be the first woman Buddha. So she's tremendously inspiring to me. And so she decided to go to a cave in, that somebody told her about in this place in the Himalayas called Lehul. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. She heard about this cave that is above the 13,000-foot range in a place where uh, there is pure white snow. The, her vista from that place is pure white snow eight months of the year. And only four months of the year, um, it's, you know, it's a little, she sees a, a little greenery. And so she goes to this place, and she gets her cave together. She, she calls it a very pukka cave. Uh, pukka is a word for, you know, um, it has, it's, it's a lovable, it has a cave, it's a cave with a little dignity. But it, she had only enough room to stretch out, barely enough room to do her yoga in. And she built her meditation box which she sat up in. She never laid down for 12 years. And she sat up in that meditation box. Um, she was at this dizzying height. And uh, she, dis she said, all in all, it was perfect. <laughs> she could finally devote her entire energy and time to profound and prolonged meditation. She could begin to unravel the secrets of the inner world, the world that was said to contain the vastness and the wonder of the entire universe in this small cave. And so she was happy to go to that cave. And uh, so it describes what her cave was all about. It was really just an overhang. And so she had a, um, some concrete built on the overhang so that it would enclose it. And uh, she had a little, um, a, a little place where she could heat some, some water and cook her food, a little stove. But she only did it like once a day. And somebody asked her why, even when it got really cold. And she said it was too much trouble. She would rather sit in meditation. She only did enough to heat up her you know, her tea and her food. She only ate once a day. And she had to go fetch water in a stream very far below. And she only took a bath with one bucket of water. She didn't sweat very much because it was very cold. I think she only took a bath um, every few weeks. But she had to preserve water. So she only took a bath with one bucket 
of water. So when we talk about conserving water, this is like the far edge. <laughs> and um, uh, one time she got snowed in, and she couldn't turn on, it was really cold, and she couldn't turn on the heat because it took up oxygen. And so uh, it, was, it was dark for like three days, and she couldn't see. And um, so she decided to go through her death meditation, prepare for her death. And she went through that for a few days. And then she heard a voice. She didn't know what to do, and she heard a voice that said, dig. So she did. She started digging. And she didn't know why in the beginning, but she insisted on that the door open inwardly instead of outwardly. She didn't realize that until that happened, where she got snowed in. And so she was able to open her door and dig herself out. And um, she got snowed in again and again and again, but she still, uh, she still kept going. That didn't stop her from practicing. She had a minuscule area of six feet by six feet. That was her area. That was uh, how much she had to practice in and be in. And so one time, food wasn't delivered to her. And she practically starved to death, like for three weeks or something like that. And then there was a cold, the tremendous, unremitting, penetrating cold, month after month. It plunged to 35 degrees below in the winter. And, um, but she avowed equanimity. She just stayed with it. And even though the cold was intense. She said, uh, somebody asked her about her, her, her stove, and she said, sure, it was cold, but so what? When you're doing your practice, you can't keep jumping up and down to light the stove. So her tremendous faith, I mean, it, it takes deep faith to have that. So what nourishes faith? The characteristic of faith, one characteristic, is trusting. And it's trusting the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Sometimes you can't feel you can trust the Buddha or that bud inside you that's blossoming. And the reason why we can't trust it sometimes is because we're impatient. You know, we kind of want to take that bud and rip our petals apart. We're not trusting the proper timing that only our heart knows. So if we can't trust in that bud, and we can't recognize that impatience, that may be what's feeding the, the doubt, what's fueling the doubt, then maybe we can trust in the Dhamma, in the teachings, and maybe we can find something somewhere that keeps us going. Or maybe we trust in the Sangha. You know, many times I open my eyes and look at you so I can keep going myself. So trusting in that um, faith is trusting. The function of, the, of faith is to clarify 
or to enter into. You know, when we enter into something, we become more clear. It's said that investigation is the antidote to faith, uh, to doubt, the antidote to doubt. Because through investigation, we get more clear. It brings clarity about what's going on. When we have doubt, usually what's happening is we're not connecting and sustaining our attention on the breath or on whatever's happening. If we just can go back to that simple moment-to-moment, connecting, can we connect to what's happening, to the doubt itself, to hopelessness or helplessness, to uh, impatience, can we connect, can we sustain our attention there? Just on that, that level, that very practical level, it's the antidote to doubt. And energy comes from that. When we can have confidence and faith, it opens to energy. And that energy can be directed into investigation. And that investigation can help us go into the unknown. And then that brings another round of faith and another round of energy and another round of investigation and another opening into a place where we haven't felt at ease before. Samuel Beckett says, uh, I can't go on. I go on. You know, we have that feeling, I can't go on, but we take the next step. We take the next breath. It's really interesting that how faith in the Visuddhimagga, I found a passage where faith is, in, is parallel, has a parallel energy to greed. But it's taking that energy that we use towards greed, with greed, and we direct it somewhere else. So listen to this. It is said, this is talking about the different temperaments. There's the greedy type, the aversive type, and the, um, the deluded type. It is said that the greedy temperament type has parallel energy to the fate to that Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.